Hello, and welcome to this FRDH podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. Apologies to regular listeners, and especially people who've taken time to go to the website and donate to FRDH, who wonder why there haven't been as many of these podcasts as usual recently. It's because I was making a documentary for BBC Radio 4 to mark the 50th anniversary of the assassinations of Dr. Martin Luther King and Senator Robert F. Kennedy. The program, called The King and Kennedy Assassinations, If the Dead Could Speak, aired recently and now streams on BBC iPlayer, if you want to listen. The program went out in the archive on four slot and is built around interviews with King and Kennedy's children, grandchildren, and close associates, intercut with archive sound of the two men speaking, as well as news reports from 1968. I was a high school senior in 1968 and have vivid memories of the murders, making the program dredged up many feelings. Up to a point, it was fun because YouTube, our modern electronic library of Alexandria, is full of extraordinary stuff put up by people who have copied it from God knows where and publish it under standard YouTube license. Information wants to be free, right? But it was also frustrating, because if you want to use it in a BBC documentary, you have to pay ridiculous sums to the ultimate owners of the copyright. A couple of examples. I came across a clip of Dr. King on The Mike Douglas Show, an afternoon chat program of the 1960s. A very young Roger Ailes worked as a producer on Mike Douglas and used it as a springboard to a career that led to the founding of Fox News. The clip wasn't that important, but using it would have allowed me to create a picture of 1960s America when a tea-time television show, primarily aimed at housewives, had serious interviews with leading newsmakers in addition to celebrity chat. My producer and I tracked down the rights holder, CBS Entertainment, and got the following note when we asked to use the clip. Unfortunately, due to a recent staff layoff at CBS, we no longer have any individual dedicated to clips. As such, we are not able to accommodate any documentary or other requests where our minimum license fee of $10,000 per 30 seconds per clip is not paid. In addition, it's our policy that we do not ever license audio-only material, separate and apart from the original footage. The clip I wanted to use was about 65 seconds long, so at least $20,000. And believe me, BBC budgets don't stretch that far. Anyway, CBS's current management is clearly prejudiced against radio. Don't like that. Then there was an edition of Face the Nation from 1964, a Sunday morning news interview program, it's still running, with Texan Dan Rather, a rising star at CBS following his superb coverage of the John F. Kennedy assassination in Dallas the previous autumn, and Ben Bradley, not transubstantiated into the hero of Watergate yet, not even at the Washington Post, but still Newsweek's Washington bureau chief. During the course of the interview, Rather, a white man of the South, asks King, a black man of the South, whether the Civil Rights Bill might create a significant backlash among previously Democratic voting white Southerners. It was a terrific, prescient, and frank question. The give and take between the two lasted about 90 seconds. It would have been perfect in an archive-based program. A different arm of CBS responded. W-A-Z-E-E Digital, based in Colorado, gave us this price, 
$38 a second, $76 for anything using branded talent, like Dan Rather, plus a $1,500 flat fee, nearly 5000 bucks for a 90-second clip. As you can imagine, that was also well outside my budget. I came across a superb interview with Dr. King from 1967, conducted by Sander Van Oker, which aired on NBC. NBC were very straightforward. For $10,000, they would just send the video, and I could extract the sound myself. There were other clips that just made the history live for me. Ray Shearer of NBC News interviewing Bobby Kennedy a few days before the March on Washington in 1963, the march where King delivered the I Have a Dream speech. Kennedy, at the time, was attorney general, and he and his brother, the president, didn't want that march to happen. They were worried it might spark riots in Washington. The Kennedys were moving towards civil rights legislation, and they didn't want to have that initiative spiked because of violence. The interview was clearly intended to get the Kennedys out in front of the story. In the event, the march was a complete success. I Have a Dream entered the pantheon of modern political rhetoric. Using the clip would have illustrated perfectly the wary but ultimately powerful partnership King and Kennedy had. But at 10,000 bucks, there was no way to use it. The inability to use these clips affected the final shape of the program. Luckily, my interviewees were so open in sharing their memories and feelings, I was able to shape it around their words and the speeches of King and Kennedy, but the situation made me angry. I had hoped to create a picture of the very different America in which these two leaders operated. One of the key differences, as I've been explaining, was the quality of broadcast news. No one should own history, and since so much of the history of the last hundred years is electronically recorded and preserved, I think there needs to be a serious rethink about its commodification. CBS and NBC have been bought and sold several times in recent decades, and their news output and video libraries have been passed around with them, just a transferable corporate asset. But there's a fundamental difference between an entertainment program and a piece of the historical record, even if, for the sake of the sale, they are considered one and the same. And everyone should have free access to this record and fair use of it to make history programs. Whatever frustration I felt about the situation was trumped by a feeling of sadness. It's impossible to overstate how far American broadcast journalism has fallen in the last half century. 1968 was a serious time. King and Kennedy were thoughtful men. So were the journalists who interviewed them. The quality of the questions being asked, the well-considered answers of the pair, were unlike anything today. Network News was the embodiment of Edward R. Murrow's famous dictum inscribed on the DuPont Columbia Award Certificate, which hangs above my desk. This instrument can teach, it can illuminate, yes, and it can even inspire, but it can do so only to the extent that humans are determined to use it to those ends. Otherwise, it is merely wires and lights in a box. Murrow pulled his punch there. It is wires and lights in a box, all right, but not merely. The box still has a function, to turn information, and today, disinformation, into commodities sold for corporate profit. 
I confess that watching the interviews and listening to the speeches of Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy brought me to the brink of tears once or twice. It isn't just the news business that has declined. Politicians today are so deep inside their bubbles, reality hardly breaks through. They can barely speak their minds because their words and thoughts are outsourced to media consultants and pollsters. The media plays gotcha and find the flip-flop, and today's Paul runs scared of those headlines. They enter their bubbles at an early stage in their careers and are cut off from real experience, life-changing experience. King and Kennedy were young men when they became national figures, but continued to evolve and think and rethink their positions. They thought things through in public, and they didn't just use rhetoric to inspire. They used their public appearances to argue with their supporters. It was inspirational in its own way. In his brief campaign for the Democratic nomination, Bobby Kennedy spoke at a lot of college campuses. He wasn't universally loved. A lot of students had thrown their energy into the campaign of Eugene McCarthy, who had challenged Lyndon Johnson before Kennedy, and demonstrated that anti-Vietnam War feeling was profound in the Democratic Party and the country. They remained devoted to McCarthy and viewed Kennedy as a carpetbagger, riding his fame to take over the crusade they had begun. Kennedy had to address this in his campus speeches, so he always included frank acknowledgment of his error in supporting his brother, the president's troop buildup. That usually drew cheers, but in each of the speeches I listened to, he challenged the students, people whose votes and organizing energy he needed, on the draft. He didn't think there should be draft deferments for students. Why? because it put the burden of fighting the war on the backs of the poor, those who were cheated of a good education because schools in poor areas tended to be substandard, and so they were less likely to get into college. And even if they could get into a university, they might not be able to afford to go. That wasn't right. That wasn't fair, he said. His position was not universally appreciated among the crowds, but he told them anyway. This is who I am. This is what I think. In talking about the draft, Kennedy would cite statistics showing that blacks, in 1968 the term African-American was not in common use, the word Negro was on the way out, black was the word used to describe people of African descent in the U.S., were twice as likely to be drafted and disproportionately represented in the casualty lists. Race was another subject King and Kennedy discussed with an honesty that is unimaginable today. Both men understood that legislating correctives for segregation was only part of the battle to realize the promise of equality and civil rights. Poverty in America needed to be addressed also. Kennedy had been taken to the Mississippi Delta in 1968. He had been overwhelmed by what he had seen, malnourishment, lack of sanitation and basic public services in black communities, housing more appropriate to Haiti than the United States, it was life-changing for him. He already knew about white poverty in Appalachia and saw that America had a huge problem of economic inequality that undergirded almost all social problems. He enlisted Dr. King to join with him in making war on poverty. In the last year of their lives, this is what they did. Their public pronouncements on the subjects are very close. King tells his audiences about poor whites as well as their impoverished fellow blacks. Kennedy is always at pains to make sure that his audiences understand that poverty is colorblind. The pair disagreed on one thing, the remedy. King called for universal basic income. 
Yes, half a century ago, Dr. King was talking about UBI. Kennedy preferred to guarantee every person of working age a job. Today, of course, it's unusual to hear progressive political leaders speak in a colorblind way about the economy. Various ethnic and socioeconomic groups compete for a little extra help from the government. They don't work together to make government a vehicle for a more equitable start in life for everyone. That's another thing that can be traced back to the twin decapitation of America's progressive leadership in 1968. It's moot, of course, how American history might have unfolded if King and Kennedy had lived. If you haven't guessed, I'm a Kennedy partisan. Retrospectively, in the spring of 1968, I wasn't overly political. I was in the throes of high school senioritis and trying without success to lose my virginity. Retrospectively, I'm certain that Bobby Kennedy would have won the nomination and beaten Richard Nixon, although some historians I respect say that a backlash was coming and it wasn't a foregone conclusion that Bobby Kennedy would have won. The election of 1968 was actually closer than people remember. Despite the murders and the subsequent riots at the Democratic Convention in Chicago and the Nixon campaign's nakedly racist appeal to white Southerners, the so-called Southern strategy, Hubert Humphrey, the eventual Democratic Party nominee, and the most liberal man ever to run for the White House, almost got there. Andrew Young, King confidant and former U.S. ambassador to the U.N., told me that if one vote for precinct nationally had changed from Nixon to Humphrey, the Democrat would have won. Several people I interviewed for the documentary pointed out that a significant number of white working-class voters who supported Bobby Kennedy in 68 ended up voting for the segregationist George Wallace in the 1972 Democratic primaries. It seems a reasonable conclusion that Kennedy was probably the only politician around who might have held the New Deal coalition together for a few years longer as it strained to accommodate civil rights and anti-war activism. Or maybe not. The murders worked at a very deep level on people. For those of us still alive, they continue to have an effect on a subconscious level. When I interviewed Andrew Young for my documentary, he told me something interesting. Young was at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis when Dr. King was shot. He was very open in remembering what he saw and what he thought looking down at King's lifeless body. And then he added that among King's associates in the moments after his death, there was no weeping or moaning. Everyone knew what had to be done to keep Dr. King's work going, and they got to it. Then, Young added, it wasn't until eight weeks later, when Kennedy was shot, that he broke down. I wanted to tell him, but didn't. It wasn't appropriate at that moment in our interview, about waking up on the East Coast and hearing the news, and then jumping in the shower to get ready for school, and a chill of fear washing up inside me as the hot water streamed down. They will kill everyone, I thought, with no idea of who they might be. Of all the feelings dredged up making my documentary, this was the most intense. It wasn't the first time I've been reminded of that feeling. I've thought of it when talking to people whose societies have disintegrated into civil war. They might point to me, a journalist, 
not of their place to one act of individual violence against a political leader, which showed that all the stability you take for granted about your world is an illusion. You go through life hardly thinking about the foundations on which your society is built. Your quotidian thoughts are about work, your spouse, your children. If you're young, you think about losing your virginity or the draft or what to major in at college. But then the leaders of the society are murdered. It's a psychological trauma. The world you took for granted is fragile, insubstantial. It can melt into air, into thin air. Andrew Young broke down. I'm leaning against the shower wall, shivering as hot water runs over me. Multiply our experience by millions. That's a powerful social trauma. A half century later, repressed memories of that trauma are still shaping American society. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. You can hear more, lots more, at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com, and you can make a donation to keep these podcasts coming. Thanks.